Uh, we're carrying on um, with a new series, which is about values and practices. And two weeks ago, we looked at worship, devoted worshippers as our first uh, value. And then last week, Dave uh, spoke on submitted to scripture as one of our practices, i.e. that's something that we actually can do. And there's this kind of like tangible expression of this uh, to that end. Uh, this is the Bible reading plan that some of us are doing in the church. It's over two years um, and we've printed out some copies. Uh, I think somebody said last week, you've only got about a month's worth, nearly a month's worth to catch up with. But you can join in today and just kind of jump on board. Um, some of us are doing that and there's a website link uh, with that as well and you can go there and uh, the Bible Project have done various videos to explain the passages that we're looking at. It's a fantastically good resource uh, for a few minutes a day to kind of devote ourselves to the reading of scripture. I uh, would really recommend that. You may have got your own reading plan, that's fine, but if you haven't, this might just be helpful to you as a really practical thing to jump in on. It's not meant to beat you up. Uh, you're not meant to be behold into it in such a way that you feel guilty, um, but maybe it might just help. It might just be something for you to engage with. And then today uh, we're back onto a value which is about loving family. So if you have your Bible, um, if you have your Bible, we're in John 17, starting at about verse 20. And this is a passage, thank you, this is a passage that uh, we've referred to a lot over the last 18 months. And maybe some of you are, uh, are used to me um, talking about it. Um, but I want to read it, and then we're going to kind of just dig in. Uh, John 17, verse 20. I remember my glasses this time. So we're definitely in the right book. I do not ask for these only, Jesus says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one. Let me just read that again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you also have given me that they may be one. Um, this week on the 16th uh, Monday, we celebrated uh, Martha, Dr. Martin Luther King Day. And uh, you may have seen in your social media um, the kind of reference to that famous speech. And uh, I saw that through kind of Twitter and Instagram, that, that wonderful speech where uh, Dr. Martin Luther King says, I have a dream. But I didn't know this until literally on Monday afternoon when I was just kind of looking at it, that actually the I have a dream part of his uh, speech wasn't in the plan. Uh, actually, uh, there was a singer with him that would travel with him by the name of Mahalia Jackson, a soul singer. And uh, you can't actually hear it in a lot of the recordings, but uh, his initial speech was going to be short and brief. But as he begins to come into an end, Mahalia Jackson calls out, she says, tell them the dream, Martin, tell them the dream. And so you see him shuffle his notes to the side and he begins to share something that has been kind of downloaded to him that's on his heart. And he begins to say, this is the dream. I see this dream. 
This wonderful speech that has kind of changed the course of history, a hinge moment in our modern times, came because he had a dream and he shares from his dream. And I think what we're seeing in John 17 is something of the dream that Jesus has for the church. You see, this kind of comes at the end of a a discourse from John 13 over these few chapters, just hours out from when Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's having these kind of final conversations with his disciples. And some of that's hard to understand, but most of that is kind of centered around love. And then the kind of crescendo of all of this, the kind of finality of all of this is that he shares what I believe is his dream for the church. And his dream for the church is that we would all be wonderfully informed theologians. His dream for the church is that we would have wonderful worship that's well organized and well put together or brilliant buildings or fantastically good outreach programs or do community meals all really, really well. Of course, those are all really good things. But Jesus' dream for the church is none of those things. His dream for the church is that we, I, you, us as a community and as a body would be one that there would be unity. This is the crescendo, top of the mountain moment. So all the things that he has been sharing with his disciples, this is the dream, that you would be one, that there would be unity among you. And the truth of it is that often that's not our dream when we think about church. Sometimes when we think about church, our dream is for those other things, those other things that are good and godly, and can be a blessing and a witness, and wonderful to us. But it's not often that unity makes it to the top of the list of the things that we would really deeply desire for our churches, for our body, for our community. In fact, sometimes we put things at the top of the list that may not be so good. Some things get really, really important to us that may actually not be that important. Those are the things that we may prioritize. Unity isn't necessarily the dream. And folks, the reason for that, I think there's several, but some of those are to do with the cultural oxygen we breathe in. We've said so many times here that we are no longer a culture that lives for something or someone beyond ourselves. Rather, we have shifted in the last 60 years towards a culture of individualism. And so kind of post-Second World War, we would still see in neighborhoods people pulling together, people wanting to share life together, people working for a common goal, a goal beyond themselves. But now individualism says, no, work for your goal that brings you joy and happiness. We would see communities working for the happiness of one another, but more and more we're seeing actually even just in our Christmas advertising, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Stuff the bigger stuff, forget everything else. No, no, you are the center of the universe. You are the center of everything that's going on. You're the main character in this film. It's about you, you, you. And so when we come across his dream, Jesus' dream for us, that actually we would be a unified body, it kind of grates up against the cultural oxygen that we're breathing in and out all the time. And we have to be aware of that. All of us have to be aware of that. Secondly, it's this, we also live in a time of disinformation. I want to ask you a question. Where do you go to for your news now? The New Testament. (laughs) There's always one. Yeah, thank you, Malcolm. Yeah, I didn't have that in my notes. Um, 
where do you go to for your news? I, it's changed. Like, I don't know, maybe for you. I, 10 years ago, I would go to certain places for news and kind of have a, a reasonable trust that what they were telling me was true and accurate and non-biased. Friends, I, I am not a conspiracy theorist. Just, so, just want to put that out that much. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But I do not know where to go for my news now. The reason I use Twitter is not because I have a prolific following on Twitter, because I don't. Uh, the reason I use Twitter is to try and see what's going on in the world through, hopefully, some kind of unfiltered lens, although it's completely imperfect. But even in the last 10 years, we've seen massive shifts in who and what we trust in order to establish what is true. Because we live in a time of disinformation. There are organizations right now that are existing for the very purpose of feeding in disinformation into our politics, into social media, into narrative, in or into our social narratives in order to direct us in certain ways, in order for us to vote in certain ways and see issues in certain ways. It's disinformation. And friends, it's not only the organizations, there is a spiritual battle over disinformation as well. In his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis talks about um, wormwood and screwtape. And screwtape is a demon who is discipling wormwood. And they have this concourse, this conversation, because wormwood reports back to screwtape that this man that he's been working on, disaster, has started to attend the church. And so he's saying to Screwtape, yeah, what can I possibly do? And Screwtape says something like this. Our biggest, our, our biggest positive outcome, our biggest influence is the church itself. Not as we, the demons, see the church, mighty and resplendent in battle. But how they see the church. For it would only take a minute for, them, for him to go to a church and sit next to somebody who squeaks their shoe or sings out of tune or has a despicable double chin. It would only take a minute for that person to begin to think that their faith and their religion is ridiculous when they look at the church as they see it. That's disinformation. That is spiritual battle. That is spiritual warfare that is designed upon all of us that when we would gather, we would focus on things that may well be true. Some of us do sing out of tune. Some of us do have squeaky shoes. Some of us, anyway. So you know, those things are true, but the disinformation wants to tell us that that tells us, therefore, that the church is ridiculous, that it's powerless, that it is not fit for battle. And so, so often we get frustrated and we think, what was all that about? And we go home and... We're just going to carry on. We went to church, we took the box, and then we're going to go back to Monday morning and do what we did last Monday. We live in a time of disinformation, and that is designed to twist and perverse unity. And again, friends, all of us have to be aware of this. All of us have to be sensitive to this. If this is Jesus' dream for us, that there would be unity and that we would be one, then we better really start thinking about the tools and weapons that are designed against us that would undermine those things, haven't we? And some of that takes deep reflection. It takes repentance. It takes honesty. 
But what I can tell you is that all of us are tainted with it in some way. None of us are free of it. And so all of us have a responsibility to understand that. What's also helpful, I think, is to understand, well, what does unity look like? I think sometimes with unity, it can be a bit like describing our favorite restaurant. Um, and sometimes when we're describing our favorite restaurant, it's hard to break it down into its kind of qualitative constituent components. We just have a feel for what our favorite restaurant might be, and it might be the ambience, and sometimes that's difficult to describe, or it may be a particular dish, but there's a whole range of dishes, and sometimes it's about the company and the timing. All of those things can kind of feed into what makes our favorite restaurant. But it is important, I think, with unity, in the same way that we kind of know it when we feel it, and it is felt, and it is sensed, and there is this kind of spiritual dynamic to it. I think we can also use the text to say that there are some clear, clear directive components to unity. Number one is this. Jesus says when he prays for us, because he's not only praying for the disciples, he says that they would be taught by your word and that they would be one as you and I are one. So for the disciples to know what that meant, they had to know who God the Father was and who Jesus the Son was. And when in Romans, Paul says that the Holy Spirit has, in the old language, set the love of God abroad in our hearts or filled our hearts with the Lord, filled our hearts with the love of God, then there had to be some understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. So their unity was built around a sense of truth. And that truth was, this is God, this is the Father, and this is the Son. Friends, without truth, there can be no unity without us being unified around the person and nature of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there can be no unity. The second thing is there was unity in their union with one another in how they lived out community. And we see this in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, comma, and to the fellowship, comma, and to the breaking of bread. And there was no need among them, for they had all things in common. So we know that they were unified around truth and we know that they were unified around the way in which they related to one another. Romans 12 says we are called to be a living sacrifice. The truth is we lurch towards being more called to being lukewarm. If living sacrifice is literally about putting others before ourselves, if living sacrifice is I am actually passionately devoted to this group of people, if living sacrifice is, I want the best for this person, even when they sing out of tune and they've got squeaky shoes and all of those kind of things, then how can we have unity if actually so many of us lurch towards lukewarm? We do the church thing, we come along, we're nice, we're friendly, we get to know people to a certain degree, but then we go back into our silos. I don't think unity, the dream of Jesus, is realizable in that context. So there was unity around truth. There was unity around community. But there was unity also around mission and purpose. And we see that as the texts and the pages and the missionary journeys of Acts unfolds. All of them knew that they were actually existing for something beyond themselves. Jesus says that they would be one as I and the Father are one. Why? For the sake of the world, so that they would know that I came. And the disciples understood this. They didn't form in such a way that would just serve them and that they would have warm, fuzzy feelings. But actually they knew that they were pointed towards a world that didn't yet know the name of Christ. 
So there was unity in truth. There was unity in the way they related to one another. But there was unity in purpose. And also, unity is not the same as conformity. Friends, I praise God. I've literally, I've said this just this week to several people. I praise God that when we look around the church right now, we are all from incredibly diverse backgrounds. Absolutely praise God for that. I believe it is a sign of God's grace to us that there is such diversity in this room. And so in unity, we're not saying that we have to do things all the same. I love the fact that actually in our worship, it's different. You know, it's different according to who leads it. Because we have different people with different styles and backgrounds and cultures that are leading us. I believe it's a gift to this body. Friends, unity is not conformity, but it is a celebration of difference around the one person, the unified Jesus Christ. And in our difference and in our diversity, our focus is towards him. For that's the one person, the one thing that we have in common. Unity is not conformity. With that being said, I want to just share uh, just a few things about how this unfolds and how we live this. And so um, very, very briefly, is that we are loved to love for the sake of the world. And in order for us to do two and three, to love for the sake of the world, we have to go back to the source of this love. And we have to have this kind of, I believe, this fresh revelation for many of us that we are loved. And it starts with God, the Trinity, in Genesis chapter 1. That there is this trinity that coexists with one another in difference and in unity. There is uniqueness, but unity. And in that relationship of love, we are told that God is love. Correct? John says, God is love. One of the most frequently quoted verses of scripture. But in 1 John, we're also told that God is light. And the first thing that the trinity speaks out is, let there be light. And so he is love, but he is also light. And what we see, just for the sake of time, I'm going to, through the unfold in the Old Testament, is that this love is arced towards redemption. This love is arced towards redemption. Because he is love and because he is light, his love is a holy love that is arced towards meeting people in their repentance so that they would turn to him afresh and anew and know him as Lord and Savior. So when he comes to Abraham, he says, I know this is not working, but there's a plan in place that's going to unfold through you. And we see the threads of this plan through the Exodus story. We see the threads of this plan through the floods. We see it when he says they're going to take their, their, their hearts of stones and I'm going to make them flesh and they will know me as their God and I will know them. There's this arc of redemption. Folks, if you have repented and if you have come to know the Lord, then you have seen the absolute manifest, tangible, highest reality of his love expressed and seen and witnessed in your life. It's interesting to me that when we think about the prodigal son, we see the father acting in love every single day. In love, he is looking for his son every single day. He's peering to the horizon, waiting for his son to return. 
But at what moment do we see the tangible manifest love of the father towards his son? It's when his son realizes that he's come to the end of himself. Or in some texts, he's come to his senses. It's when he's realized that all the things that he's chased after do not bring him the joy that he thought they would. But in that, read it, his heart changes towards his father. He's gone from cold reality, just give me what you've got, I'm going to take this and go. And now his heart's changed. Actually, my father was good, even the servants were looked after. And so as he runs home, the love of the father is most beautifully seen and witnessed when it collides with the repentance of the son. And the, son, the father wraps his arms around the son and brings him back in and says, welcome home. And he puts this ring on his finger and reestablishes his place and identity. Folks, the love that we have received, this redemptive love, is a love that we receive every single day. Every single day when we stray away from our home, when we stray away from our identity as sons and daughters, when we go after other things because we think, well, that, that will bring me happiness. That will bring me some kind of joy. And when we come to the end of that and our hearts change again and we look to, uh, towards the Father, we see every single day the tangible, beautiful, manifest love that is arced towards our continued redemption. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have witnessed that in your life. And for many of us, we have to have, I believe, this kind of fresh reality of the love that is tangibly working through us on a day-to-day -day basis. This God who was light steps into our darkness. This God who is light steps into our darkness with skin and flesh. And the sun comes to be with creation. And we're told that in the beginning of this concourse in John 13, having had three years of working with these disciples, walking with these disciples, eating with these disciples, where he's had a front row view, this kind of cinematic screen of sin and brokenness and the thing that is going to take him to the cross in the hours to come. At the beginning of John 13, 1, we're told that having come to his own, he loves them until the end. This God who is light, who has this fiery, holy love, who dwells in an inapproachable light, comes into our darkness with creation, is walking with creation for three years and sees the brokenness of our states he sees the fact that we cannot save ourselves. He sees the things that our hearts lurch towards. And even in that, it says, having come to his known, he loves them until the end. I want to tell you something, folks. Your sin this week has not been a surprise to him. The way that you've messed up this week has not been a surprise to him. God the Father is not in heaven thinking, I don't know how we deal with this. I don't know what the, what the plan would be for this. Because we worship a God who absolutely promises for those who love him, he is going to endure until the end. This redeeming love, this redeeming love. How does God show his love for us? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who is God working good for all the time? For those who what, love him, he's working good. 
Philippians 1, one of my favourite passages, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And it is right at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is right for me to feel this way because you, all of us here, are partakers with him in what? Grace. We are all partakers in grace, both in my imprisonment and my defence of the gospel. Paul says, I'm confident of this, that those of us who have turned towards him in repentance, who've experienced the redeeming arc of his love, where it's been tangibly manifest in us, where the spirit has set abroad the love of him in our hearts. He said, he will hold you. He will bring it to completion. And the way that we mess up in between is of no great surprise to him. But when we turn in repentance, when we make that journey every single day, where we come back to the Father, we say, I got this wrong. I got this wrong. That's the love that we have received, friends. And he says, come here. Come here. You're coming home. Not as a slave. You're not coming home on ice. You're not going to be in the corner. We don't need to kind of leave you to the side. You're going to come home as a son. Let me put this ring on your finger. We cannot know unity if this reality does not grip our hearts every single day, friends. Every single day. He is confident that he will bring that work to completion because of grace. Because of grace. And if you know the Lord, if he's your Lord and Saviour, you will know what it's like to come to the end of yourself and to think, yeah, this isn't working. This isn't going in the direction that I thought it would. And to receive his embrace afresh. Just want to stop there. Some of you are struggling with this. And Terry, I saw Terry when gave me a word a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about worship. And we are talking about Zephaniah. And in Zephaniah it says that he sings and rejoices over us. And if you remember... We're saying that the kind of Hebrew meaning of that is this like spinning top, you know, these kind of things. And I think they've stopped making them because they were like made out of lead and probably very poisonous. But there was these kind of things in the 70s and 80s. Any of you under 40 are looking at me like I'm from a different planet. But there really was these things and you press them and they would spin and spin and spin and spin. And so there's a sense that when God is kind of connecting with us and when he thinks of us, that he literally spins. The Hebrew for that is he's spinning almost out of control and there are whoops of joy as he does so. That's the picture of the way that the Father feels about us and towards us and for us. And the reality is that even as I'm saying that, that's landing on very, very dry ground for some of us. And I just want to, let's just take a second to pray. Take a second to pray. Put a hand over your heart. If, you, if you'd like to, you don't have to. But Father, right now, I would pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, for those of us who are listening to this and there is a disconnect, would you begin to minister, continue to minister by your Holy Spirit? Would you give us all a fresh sense of the love that you have for us? Would you give us all a fresh sense of that embrace and you just come now Lord come now Lord by your spirit thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus we are loved and friends we are loved to love we are loved to love I'm just conscious of time but let me just say a few things um, 
some practical things about unity. And remember, I'm talking about our love between us, our love as believers, okay? And the things that often will distract us away from unity, some of these things we know. We know that sin can distract us away from unity. But there's also our response to sin that can distract us from unity. When somebody does something against us, when somebody speaks out or somebody does something that we find deeply, deeply wounding, as much as the offence can distract from unity, so our reaction to it also can take away from our unity. Now, Matthew 18 gives us, we're going to it now, a really kind of clear, practical way in which we can deal with these things. And I would just say now, in our British culture, we are not very good at doing conflict. Like, we're just not good at it. Um, and one of the things we have to be is, I think, better at it and more intentional because if we are striving for the dream of Jesus towards unity, and if that's the goal, and it's not the goal to knock somebody down or to kind of, kind of undermine them in any way, then we have to be open to the fact that we sometimes will need to raise things, that we'll need to say, I think you've done this and I'm finding that very, very difficult. That's part, I think, of working towards unity is that we have this kind of culture where in love and because we're striving for that common purpose and mission and because we're so concerned about maintaining unity, we're not just going to hold on to things. I want to ask you a question. Has somebody offended you in the last six months? Have I offended you in the last week, three weeks, six months, 18 months? Quite possibly. But I want to ask you again, when you think about that person, what are the thoughts that come to mind? When you think about that person, are there thoughts that come to mind? And maybe they are very, very negative. Maybe there are things about not necessarily wanting the best for that person. Maybe you've written them off. Can that person exist in your mind unharmed? Or do you find yourself kind of having emotions and thoughts and feelings towards them? I want to say that as much as that person may well have done something, and as much as repentance may well be needed and necessary, so too is our reaction to that. And offence so often is at the root of this. We live in a highly offended culture. It has become people's favourite word in certain areas of it. I feel offended. And so we take that, I think sometimes, and we bring it into the church. But offence will undermine our unity. Uh, secondly, it's this, that we tend to raise secondary issues as primary issues. Now, there are things that are primary issues to us as a church. And I actually think it's loving for us to be clear about those. So we're working through some stuff right now with bishops in the Church of England about what is clear to us and what is a primary concern to us. And that's going to lead us in a certain direction for sure. But there are a range of things that we would say as believers, we, as I said at the beginning, we cannot have unity if we do not agree on them. They are absolutely core doctrine, orthodoxy, to who we say the Father is, the Son is, the Spirit is, and his working through us as a community and intermission. They are key issues that we do not let go of. But so often we raise secondary issues over and above them. There's this old um, joke that's been around for a while, and I'm going to butcher it, but uh, there's a man that's walking along a bridge, and he sees another man who's about to jump in, uh, jump over. 
and there's a big kind of drop underneath. And so this guy goes up to him, he says, don't, do not jump, do not jump. Surely there is something for you to live for. And, uh, and the guy says, well, what can I live for? And the man says back to him, well, are you religious? And he says, oh yeah, I am religious. And he says, oh, okay, are you, um, you know, what religion are you? Are you Christian? And the guy says, yeah, I am a Christian. Oh, brilliant. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Oh, I, I'm Protestant. Great, I'm Protestant as well. Fantastic. Are you um, Reformed or Arminian? Oh, I'm Reformed. Oh, fantastic. That's great. I'm Reformed as well. Are you Charismatic or are you a cessationist? I'm Charismatic. Oh, brilliant. You're, oh, that's wonderful. You're Charismatic. Oh, good. Uh, do, you know, uh, do you believe in the King James or do you read the old, the old King James? I read the old King James. In the river, heretic. <laughs> And so often, that is exactly what we do. So often, it's like we agree on so much. We agree on the things that are of central importance. What Paul says, I passed on to you what was of primary importance. We agree on those things. There's no room for disagreement on those things. There's room for questioning and discovery, and people will come who aren't there yet, of course. But we will divide on the stuff that actually isn't that important. And we've all been in that place where we've taken such offense at things that ultimately, if we're honest, and we perhaps years on and we take a step back, we go, you know what, that wasn't quite as important. And that was a little bit disproportionate to the amount of offense that I felt over it. Sometimes that can undermine our unity. And lastly, for the world to know, how does this attest how can it be that Jesus says, this is my dream for the church, and that in your, their unity, the world is going to know that I came. It's going to be a testimony to the unbelievers that I came. And I want to suggest this because it can only be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. I am not aware of any other groups across 2,000 years that have stuck together through thick and thin and in their love for one another, they have continued on in their gospel witness to Christ. And that this movement that begins with 12 disciples who were not the people that you would start a, religion, a religious movement with by any means whatsoever, that this thing kind of gets lit by the Spirit and it begins to spread through that world. It's because it was a work of the Spirit. And friends, our unity is not possible aside from the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I met somebody uh, this week, and I only literally just remembered this this morning. Um, we, our boiler went, um, I don't know, when was it? Wednesday night, it just started gushing water. And he's like, oh great, it's half past 10 at night and it's really cold and uh, there's water gushing. So anyway, we, we called a, a, a plumber and the plumber came the following day, which was great, a really good guy. And he left for an hour and um, left us with the apprentice. It was just me and this apprentice. It was a bit awkward because like, he didn't know what to do. He didn't realize that his mate had gone to get this part. So we're just like chatting and a really nice young guy. And um, he said, oh, uh, what do you do for a job? Which is always an easy in. And I said, well, actually, I'm a church pastor. And he said, oh, are you? He said, I would love to know what you think about the divinity of Christ. <laughs> Exactly, as it, word for word what he said. You know when you're thinking, well, I'm not actually ready for that conversation right now. Like I was just in a different headspace. 
And I said, well, why don't you tell me what you think? Yeah, clever. Why don't you tell me what you think about the divinity of Christ? Not my first rodeo, sunshine. And so um, he says, well, I'm, a, I'm actually a Muslim. And he said, and uh, my, um, you know, I, my, my mum's a Muslim. And uh, since we moved here from Uganda, I've been following in that way. And I find it very, very difficult to see Jesus as anybody else other than a prophet. He said, but what do you think? What do you think? And friends, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with myself. I resisted, I resisted the temptation to reel out my biblical qualifications and start telling him about all the things I know about Islam and Christianity and, and the particularity of Jesus and his divinity and all those things. I wish I could tell you that was true, but it was a fluke, or maybe it was a Holy Spirit. What was really interesting was I began to tell him about us. I began to tell him about you. And so I began to tell him that actually we've got people in our church um, from Uganda. And he said, really? You've got people in your church from Uganda? I said, yeah, yeah. We've got people in our church from Nigeria and Ghana. Really? Yeah, and from the Caribbean and from Eastern Europe and Asia. He said, are you, are you serious? I said, yeah. He said, so if I came to your church, would I stand out? I said, not at all. You would not, you would not stand out at all. He said, but how does everybody get on? I said, it's amazing. We just love one another. I said, it's not perfect. We fall out quite a lot. I said, Dave, who's my associate minister, we, we see differently on so many things. He's a vegan. I'm, I'm not. Uh, he likes rugby. I like the proper beautiful game. Uh, and honestly, there are things that he believes about the Bible. I find a little, about certain things we don't agree on. You would have seen that when we did the Q&A. Tithing, that was a big thing, wasn't it, a few months ago. We don't quite see eye to eye on that. And... Uh, I said, you know, <laughs> I said, but it's really weird. I said, we really, we really for each other. We really love one another. I said, actually, it's the same in all of our church. Some of our church have been there since it started in 22 years ago. Some of our church have come in the last three weeks. But one of the things, going back to what I said at the beginning, is that so often people will comment on the sense of togetherness that we have here, the sense of love that we have for one another. And he said, I think I might want to come to your church. Now, I don't think he would have said that if I had said, well, let me get the Bible out. As much, friends, don't hear me wrong, as much as I am submitted to the Bible. But I don't think he would have had the same reaction if I just tried to tell him what I know. And it's almost like the words that Jesus uses in John 17 are true. It's almost like that when he heard something of our unity, that we're not all the same, but there is unity in this room, I saw a light go on in him. That's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can do that. And for the first time, over many, many years, because I would have done the other thing. I would have invited him to Alpha. I would have tried to get him around for dinner. I would have tried to feed him. I would have tried to do something. But just talking about us as a body, something came on inside of him. Something switched on. Friends, the stakes for this are so high. The stakes for this are so high. 
there's this famous quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, if you want to create seafarers, don't tell them how to build boats, but give them a love for the ocean. Give them a love for the ocean. And so often in church life, we talk about the sea, the mission, the community, but we're preoccupied on building the boats. So we get preoccupied in the detail. We get preoccupied in the programs. We need those things. We need those things. But actually, what has to drive those things is a love for the community. The love that we have for one another. The love that we have in this place. Our love as we are unified with the Father. That's what drives all the other stuff. And it is not our ambition here at Oakley that people would join simply just to serve and give. Like serving and giving is wonderful. There is something sacred about it. But what has to drive our serving and giving is our unity with him, our unity with one another, and our love and our, our desire for that unity to spill out into that place. So we don't get preoccupied with the boats, but we have a love for the ocean. We have a love for the ocean. And it just seems to me that when Jesus says this, it was not advisory. It was not a, if you want to do this, you can Rather, it was the ultimate dream that he would have for each expression of those who would turn to him and call him Lord and Saviour. If we stripped everything else away, if suddenly we were in a different context where there was persecution, where we couldn't meet freely like this, if we took away all of the blessings that we have in buildings and this wonderful worship that we have and all this stuff, and kids, if we, kids working, if we took all those things away, would we have that one thing that Jesus says is his dream for us? Because if we did, we'd be fine. If we did, the world will know. If we did, people will still come to him. Amen. And so please don't leave from here. If there's something you're like, oh, I just need to get prayer for that. Similarly, um, if you have a complaint or criticism, um, please talk to Dave. No, sorry. If you have a question, <laughs> if you have a question, there is a QR code there. We're going to do a Q&A at the end of this series. And if something, again, you're not sure about, you disagree with, um, then you can just scan that on your phone or come and tell us and we'll write it down. If you don't want to do that on your phone, that's fine. Everything is anonymous. It's less anonymous if you come and tell us. But if you want to do it anonymously, you can do that through there. Okay, I'm going to be quiet.